Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I feel like I'm in the living room tonight, so I think I'm going to... I'm going to come down to where you are. He came down to my level when I couldn't come up to his. I had, Sister Missy, I had one of those songs pop into my head from years ago. Remember the song, Where Will I Be a Million Years From Now? You kids, you forgot all the good songs. Where will you be a million years from now? You've never heard that? Oh. You're either too old or too young. I don't know. <coughs> Last time I did this, everything fell on the floor and it didn't work well. But it's, it's sort of like a, well, it is like a family night. And so... I haven't predetermined how long I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak until I say what I want to say, and then we're going to be able to do what we want to do. But I, I'm currently, I'm so, in, so happy. Uh, I've started my second book, and I am so thrilled about the topic. I am just like a pig in mud. I just, I love the topic. And it, it, I really haven't got a good title for it yet. I may not have it for quite a while, but it, the temporary title is um, The Fruit of Suffering. And I have been spending a lot of time with people like Job in the scripture. And I, I saw a thread through people like Jacob and Job and all those that, and even Paul, that have went through hard spots in their life. And I've watched as they seem to have lost everything, but when it's all said and done, they've gained more than they've ever had. So tonight I want to look at one of those guys. Is, you know him as Jacob. His name is going to be changed to Israel. But Genesis, the 32nd chapter, I'll start here, and I may stop as I'm reading because I want to point out some things as I'm reading. Now, you've heard this story a lot. Well, maybe tonight you'll pick up something that you haven't seen before. It says in verse 22 of Genesis 32, during the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Now, you'll, you'll understand what's happening at this point. Jacob is leaving Haran. He's leaving Laban. God has instructed him and given him direction that he is to go back to his father's house. This wasn't something that had popped into Jacob's mind and he thought, well, this is a good time to go back. But God spoke to him and said, you go back home. So he's, he's got all of his possessions, his wives, his children, and they're heading back towards uh, his old home. And as he's traveling, he receives word that Esau, who was sworn to take his life, after he stole his birthright, is coming out to meet him with a band of 400 men. Now, it doesn't say clearly in Scripture much about the 400 men, but I would not think it was a men's moving party. I would say that these 400 men represented a, an army, a small army, trying to accomplish something that had not been accomplished when East or Jacob fled, and that was his death. So Jacob was left all alone. And I, I look at this, and I, I look at these words, and sometimes I'm, as, I, as I'm reading, I just stop at a comma, and I think he was left all alone. What a sad picture 
Have you ever felt like you were left all alone? Do you, do you realize the feeling of being alone when you're frightened or afraid? But that's what the scripture says. He was left all alone. And then there was a man wrestled with him until the daybreak. In other words, while he was alone, a man appeared. Of course, we realize that this was a theophany or deity robed in a temporary body. And it came down to wrestle with him while he was afraid and while he was alone. That angel, that angel of the Lord, wrestled with him for hours. From all through the night, he wrestled with Jacob. And when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, now I stopped there. What does that mean? He... God couldn't overpower a man? You mean the God that spoke all these things into existence? You want to talk about nuclear power? That's nothing to God. He created all the atoms and the electrons. He spoke the worlds into existence in a moment. And you mean that he could not overpower an old man? Well, if you look at the word overpower, it insinuates and the word could be translated dissuade. He could not dissuade him from his purpose. Sometimes when we're all alone in the dark, God comes to us, and we enter that, that period of prayer where we wrestle with God, interceding maybe for ourselves, maybe for someone else, and God will wrestle with us just to the point that he doesn't overcome us, waiting to see if we'll give up. And when Jacob would not stop praying or wrestling, as it's used here, God took note. And God did something at that point, and I think it's a little, it's not humorous to Jacob, but for me, I, I look at it and, I see God just reminding uh, Jacob of his power. It says he struck the socket of Jacob's hip and dislocated as they wrestled. You know what, I, I, in my mind's eye, I picture he just went, he just touched it, dislocated. He was showing Jacob, don't think that you're as powerful as you think you are. I can touch, just touch you, and I can cause you pain or dislocate your hip. And that's what many people believe happened, that his hip was dislocated as they wrestled. Then the angel of the Lord, or the man said, let me go for its daybreak. Again, I look at this and I say, well, God, all you'd have to do is just disappear. You're, you're, you're just a temporary body anyways. So there must be a message in what he's saying to Jacob. Let me go. I'm giving you an opportunity to stop wrestling. I'm giving you an opportunity to stop praying. Just let me go. The sun's rising. You got to start your day. But he's testing Jacob. And Jacob says, but Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to stop interceding. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop seeking you until I get an answer. And you bless me. What's your name? The Lord, the man asked, and that would be the Lord. Jacob, he replied. Then the man said, huh, your name will no longer be Jacob because Jacob means what? deceiver, but it's going to be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and you have prevailed. Now, I, as I'm reading this, I see that God refers to two groups here. You've struggled with God. That's what we've been doing here, Jacob. Me and you've been wrestling. You've been struggling with me but you've also been struggling with men. 
I think struggling with men is oftentimes harder than God because men have no integrity. God has integrity. But God says, not only are you wrestling with me, but you're wrestling with sources outside yourself. And you know what? You've prevailed in both. You've maintained your integrity, not only with those people that would hurt you, but you've maintained your integrity with me. Then Jacob asked him, you ask me my name. I guess I have the right to ask your name. Please tell me your name. And right away, why do you ask my name? He replied, and he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, saying, Indeed, I've seen God's face to fa- seen God face to face, and let yet my life was spared. See, he knew who he was wrestling with. He knew that God could have stopped it at any moment. God could have solved all the problems in his life just by thinking a thought. He said, I saw God face to face. Where do you find God? Where do you meet God the most? Do you meet him on the sunny, sunny days of your life when everything is peachy keen? Or do you really meet God after dark when you're all alone in the middle of the night when you don't have the strength to face what's coming tomorrow and you wrestle with him in prayer? That's the place where intimacy is developed. It's developed through the night. The sun rose above him as he passed by Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon at the hip socket because the man struck Jacob's hip socket near that tendon. People can find a tradition just about for anything. But the point is this, that when you leave that place of wrestling or intimacy with God, where God meets you and you struggle in in travail, when you leave that place of struggle, you walk different. There's something notably different about you when you've left that inner sanctum where you've wrestled with God. I call it, it's the pain that comes through victory. The pain of victory. There's a poem that goes, before every battle, before every victory, there's a battle to fight. Before you see the dawn, you must go through the night. Before the graves burst open on that resurrection morn, there's a battle to fight and a cross to be born. And that's the message that God's given to us. There's going to be things in our life that are going to cause us to walk different. You can always tell people that have been in that intimate place with God because they're different when they leave. They walk different. They talk different. There's a sense of maturity about them. But before this night, Jacob had realized that all the chickens had come home to roost. All the deception, all the things that he had done in his life as Esau was coming out to meet him with 400 angry men. And I believe he realized they were angry men. That all the sin in his life was coming back to meet him again. And just his flesh was like our flesh. What do I do when it seems that the enemy has surrounded me and I see that his force is greater than mine? How do I get away from the problem? Well, our flesh says try to buy your way out. Try to find human means 
to fight a spiritual battle. But you know what? After you've done that enough times, you realize that the battle that you're fighting can't be won through giving. You can't buy revival. You can send billions of dollars overseas and say, well, we're going to buy revival in these cities and in these countries. But the, the money only enables the people to go to fight the battle, though. It's the missionary that's struggling on the field that's winning the battle, not the money. The money is enabling him to go, but he's paying the price of revival. So here, this is taking place now before he went in uh, and sought God. In Genesis, the 32nd chapter, verse 3, just before what we read, so Jacob sent messengers ahead. This is the second thing we'll do. We'll send someone else in our place. Let's send someone else out to meet the enemy. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be the servant. Oh, everybody's cowering fear, 400 angry men, and Esau with vengeance in his eyes. Hey, servant, um, I'm going to send you. Take a few camels and here, buddy, I got a, a good plan for you. You go out and meet my angry brother. And if he kills you, I'll know it's even worse than I thought it was. Now, that's human nature. It's easier to send someone else out to do what is our responsibility. He sent him out to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them. You are to say to my master Esau, your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. Um, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, men servants, maid servants. I have sent this message to inform my master so that I may find favor in your sight. In other words, Esau, if you let me live... Maybe I'm, I'm really wealthy. I, I can be a benefit for you. Look at all the stuff I have. Would you reconsider what you told my, my kindred what, initially that you were to take my life? I got a lot to offer. Now we start to bargain. You know, I'm more valuable alive than I am dead. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, He's coming to meet you. He and 400 men with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided his people into two camps, as well as all the flocks and herds and camels. He thought if Esau comes and takes one camp, then the other camp can escape. Now there's division. Now we're separating. We're, we're trying to cut our losses. Then Jacob, now notice what Jacob does next in his prayer. Then Jacob declared, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. Now notice what he says next. The Lord who told me. Lord, you told me to go back to your country and your kindred and I will make you prosper. He's wising up. Sometimes when we're on the bottom and we have no way to turn, it's where we really begin to seek God as he is. You told me to go. You said I would prosper and you cannot lie. I am unworthy of all the, uh, the kindness and faithfulness of you you have shown. Your servant indeed, with only my staff, I came across the Jordan. But now I have come, become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid. He's really starting to be honest. It's right after this prayer that he goes and he wrestles with the angel and he gets the deliverance that he's asking for. 
For I am afraid that he may come and attack me, and also the mothers and their children with me. Notice what he says again. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to count. What Jacob is doing is he's rehearsing in his prayer the promises that God has given him and the direction that God has told him to go. Jacob spent the night there, and from what he had brought with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, uh, 30 milk camels and their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his servants in separate herds and told them, go on ahead of me and keep some distance between the herds. Even after he prayed that prayer, he was still in fear. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose animals are these before you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, Jacob is behind us. Do you know we do that even with Satan? All right, we're just going to compromise a little bit. Satan, all right, we're going to let go of some of the holiness we have. Take, take some of the holiness here, and that'll be a little bit about down payment. Maybe if you get a little bit of what I have that God has given to me, maybe that'll change your mind and you won't be so angry. But I want to tell you, no one has ever bought out Satan. Satan always has his way unless God intercedes. And he intercedes through you. Remember that. Some people are waiting for God to do something and God is saying, I've given you the tools and the power to use them yourself. So Jacob's gifts went on before him while he spent the night in the camp. He was preparing for the worst. He was desperate. He did everything he could to do it in his own power. And then he went away to seek the God of his fathers. And that's where we started tonight. And he was all alone in the night on the other side of the brook. And that's where God met him. And again, I say that seems to be human nature. Jacob's no different than what we are. He's flesh and blood. He knew fear. We know fear. Whether it's an enemy that's in a human body or whether it's a disease, whether it's a financial matter, we all experience the same struggles. In Jacob's case, we know what the purpose was. We knew what Jacob or Esau's purpose was. And here's another thing that many people don't realize. Jacob is in the worst defensible position. He's in between Laban and his new home. He has no, he has no armaments. He has no walls. He has nothing to hide behind. He's an open country. He's in between here and there. He has no one that he can make an alliance with. I guess when I, as I'm speaking to you tonight, and as I, I've thought about many times, we're all going to have those valleys and those trials where we're in between here and there. And we don't have really anything solid to lean on in, in, in the flesh or in the carnal realm. But I want to inform, reinforce with you tonight that your strength isn't in the, the structure 
of your own ability. It isn't in those people that are around you. It's not in numbers. It's not in finances. Your strength and your power is in the Lord. This was a dark hour, certainly for Jacob. And of course, we know the end of the story. After that prayer, something happens that Jacob can't see. Do you know a lot of our victories? We're praying, and God sends the victory. We don't even know about it. But while Esau was traveling with his 400 men, something happened to him, and it was a divine miracle. God changed the heart of Esau. What money couldn't do, what uh, alliances and separation couldn't protect, God did in a moment. And all he wanted from Jacob was for him to come and wrestle with him, to show him his determination. Look at um, it was Isaac. No, it was Abraham taking Isaac. And remember, he's taking his only son, and they're actually going up to a place called Mount Moriah in the scripture. And God has told him to take Isaac to a place that he will show him and offer him there as a burnt offering. Do you not think for a moment that that was a real trial? They knew what offerings were. They made them every day. They killed lambs and goats. They watched the bleeding as they died, the blood that was shed. They knew the horror of sacrifice. And God had said, I want you to take your son and I want you to take him to a place I'll show you of and offer him just like those that you've offered before. That was a battle for him. It wasn't just an hour drive either. For three days, he was walking towards a place where he was going to kill the thing that was most precious to him. That's what he thought. But there again, here's Abraham saying the same thing that Jacob's saying. God's promised me that my seed will be like the multitude of the sand by the seashore and that the stars in the sky in number. If God's made me a promise, and this is my promised son, I have to trust God because even if I slay him, he's going to have to raise him up because God cannot lie. His promises cannot fail. And what I want to engraft into your mind, and my mind as well, that oftentimes I need to go back to the Bible, to the book of hope, to the book of promises, to the book of God's word to me. And I need to rehearse the promises because not one jot nor one tittle will ever fail until everything has been fulfilled. There was no doubt in Jacob's heart when he saw Esau and Esau comes up and hugs him. He was, a, he was probably really nervous that there wasn't a knife that was going to go into his back when he hugged him, I'll tell you that. But as he's looking into Esau's eyes and he's saying, they're hugging and kissing each other. I don't want to get into the kissing part, but they're hugging and all that stuff. He's saying, who is this? This isn't my brother. God can change the heart of your enemy without you doing anything. The importance of prayer. I, I do chuckle at the end of the story because Esau um, wanted Jacob to return with him. And Jacob says, no, 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 you go back. We have all these animals and we got to allow them to graze as we travel. Otherwise, the cows are going to get weak because they're, they're, the livestock won't make it. We have to let them graze on the way. And he finally convinces Esau to go back without him. And you know what Esau does? I may have a changed heart, but I'm not ignorant. 
He left men with Jacob. He said to help him with the flocks, <laughs> they're going to make sure he comes home. Because once you've been burnt by somebody, even though there's reconciliation, there's always suspicion. So I, just to finish up on Jacob a little bit, there were marks or scars of his encounter. I, I want to go back and look at Paul for a little bit because I don't think, it, I think it's rather unique that Paul had a, an infirmity in his body and I believe some people say it was his hip too. We know that part of his infirmity would have probably been his eyesight because he mentions that in one of his epistles. But it was painful enough for Paul to pray to God three times specifically for deliverance from the pain or the infirmity in his body. And of course, God, you know what happened. He finally comes to him after the third time and he tells him, I'm not going to heal you but my strength is going to be made perfect through your weakness. And I marvel at Paul because he was so adaptable. Oh, really? This is for a reason? I'm going to, through my weaknesses, you're going to make me stronger? Oh, praise God. I'm thankful for my hip. And that's why he says, therefore will I rejoice. Oh, hey, listen. Don't you still have the pain in your hip? Yeah. You're still going to rejoice? Yeah, because God showed me something about my pain that his strength is made perfect through my weaknesses or through my infirmities. So when I am weak, huh, I'm really strong. So is it more beneficial for me to go through the struggles of infirmity or the blessings of peace? Where am I at my strongest? When I carry the marks of the Lord in my body. And notice what he writes. He wrote in Galatians 6, 17 and 18. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters, amen. But what were the marks that he bore on his body? The mark, what were the marks of Jesus? Now, I don't want you to miss this. What were the marks of Jesus? 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger with, from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So how does Paul look at all these things spiritually? He must have looked pretty bad. He was stoned, beaten with rods, lashed three times. Can you imagine the scars that were on his body? 
all over his body and he looked at all the pain, all the suffering, the times where he might have felt like the Lord had forsaken him as the stones fell upon his body and the lash beat against it. He says, these are the marks of Jesus. Do you know that the early believers rejoiced in the book of Acts that they were counted worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ? We get mad at them. They rejoice. They rejoice in the fact that they can take in their bodies the mark of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about getting caught doing something wrong. I'm talking about standing up for your faith holding on to the truth, walking with integrity. I bear the marks of Jesus. Well, Lord, I've heard them say, and one of the questions I'm addressing in my book, and I probably won't do any better than a lot of other people that have addressed it, but I'll have fun trying, is why do the righteous suffer? That is a great question. That's a question that the atheists love to hang their head on. If God is righteous and God is loving and God is all-powerful, why is it that he allows the righteous to suffer without intervention on his part? Well, I can think of a time when Christ suffered And there was no intervention on his part from God. Zechariah, the 13th chapter, verse 6 says, If someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? They will answer the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. In other words, the Lord Jesus bore marks upon his own body for our salvation. Is it so unusual? Or is God asking us to do something that he would not by bearing the same marks upon our own? Well, we think, of, we think God is, God's love is not allowing us to suffer. I was talking with a guy the other day. I forget who I was talking about, raising kids. And I'm not going to point out, but I know there's one guy that's like me, but I'm not going to point him out tonight. But Kevin, if my kids, do you ever allow your kids to do something wrong and you watched them when you told them not to do it and you sat back and said, it's going to hurt. But they've got to learn that the stove is hot. Once they feel the fire, I won't ever have to tell them again. And sometimes God allows us to feel the flame of fire because it changes our view on how we conduct ourselves. Let me just in the next couple minutes talk about one more guy. And this is the guy I'm having fun with in in my writing. Uh, His name, of course, is Job. And I look at Job's life, and I I look at his life, and I came across this just today, and I thought it was really cool. You ever drive through the Kettle Moraine, and you see they're burning? They call it, please do not call the police department or the fire department. This is a controlled burn. What is a controlled burn? We're burning good stuff so better stuff can grow. And I look at Job's life. Job's life was a controlled burn. God allowed some good stuff to go so better stuff could grow. Now, Job is a little different than Jacob because Jacob was a deceiver in the beginning. Job, as far as the scripture mentions, had always been righteous. His integrity throughout his life was completely undisputed. Satan never even brings accusation against Job's integrity. 
Technically, Job is God's poster child. And I like, you know, you like to show your poster child off? Watch as God shows him off to Satan. Job 1. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Where have you come from, said the Lord to Satan. From roaming through the earth, he replied, and walking back and forth in it. Now notice what God does. God! If I would have been there and it would have been, I'd have been Job, I said, hold on, stop pointing me out. Then Job said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on earth like him, a man who is blameless and upright, who fears God and shuns evil. Well, you know the answer to that. Satan knew exactly who Job was. He saw Job's integrity, and Satan already hated Job. He'd watched him from the other side of the hedge that surrounded him, wishing that he could sift him like wheat. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not placed a hedge on every side round about him? What's he saying? I've been completely around the place. He's telling God, I've been wandering around looking for a crack in the hedge to get at Job. Have you not placed a hedge on every side around him and his household and all that he owns? He says, I've been visiting him, but I've had no access to him. And you know what? You may think that Satan's not active in your life and you haven't been fighting any battles lately. It's not because Satan forgot who you were. Satan knows the place of the righteous. And just like he circled Job and looked at his family and every opportunity he could to harm him, God did not allow it. So if you're not fighting with Satan today, thank God because he's allowed that hedge to stand. But don't think for a moment that in your life you may not have a controlled burn. Brother Matucci, have you ever went out and trimmed trees and some are really overgrown? You ever cut off some really good-looking limbs? Wow, that is really healthy, plenty of leaves on it. But why did you cut it off? It has to prune it off. All of a sudden, you lose something in your life. There's nothing wrong with this. It could have been a child. It could have been something really valuable to you. And you say, well, God, why did you trim? I needed that. And God said, you don't understand. Sometimes I have to take away so I can bless in a different manner. I've been thinking in my own life about some things that happened. You ever hit an obstacle in the stream of life? Great big boulder. It drops right in the middle of your stream and you're heading in one direction, and then the boulder stops everything, and you can't go forward. What, what does the stream do? Does it turn off? It just says, oh, no longer need to be a stream. No place to go. Rocking away. Might as well give up. The stream finds a different route. It doesn't stop. It finds a different place to flow. Do you ever wonder why God drops a stone in your life? Hey, God, I was, I was enjoying myself. This was all downhill. God says, no, no, we're going to take a different direction. And the thing you thought was a curse, I hate you, stone, becomes a blessing. All right, very well, said the Lord to Satan. Everything he has is in your hands, but you must not lay a hand on the man himself. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Can you see him? <laughs> this is my childish imagination. He's rubbing his hands together. He's laughing, that old satanic laugh. <laughs> he's after, he's going to destroy Job. The hedge is gone. Now God's going to see 
that the church only serves him because of the blessing. And you know Satan really believes that? Because he saw so many people already leave the church when the blessing stopped. He thinks you are here just because you're of the blessings. And when God allows you to suffer, you're going to throw up your nose, walk out the door, and never come back. And that's what he expected Job to do. And again, there are people that would do that. But Job has something that other people might not have. He has a relationship with God that has knit him together with God. So that if he loses everything, he's still bound to God. That's, it's like the type of a wedding. It's a type of a marriage. Sickness and health, richer, poor. Do you promise to cleave to this person even if you lose everything? I do. It's the same thing in a relationship that God has made with us. Or maybe you didn't have that in your vows. But when we came to God, we should have said the same thing to God that we said to our husband or our wife. Lord, whether I'm rich, whether I'm poor, whether I'm sick, whether I'm well, I'm going to be with you forever. And that was what the commitment of Job was. God allows the enemy to create the venue. He didn't tell Satan what he was going to do. Satan created the own venue of temptation. But here's one of the things that I'm, I, I'm, I'm sitting and writing, and something came to me, and I thought, you know, we're always looking at Job and his suffering. But what's God doing while Job's suffering? Is he eating popcorn like he's watching a movie, watching all this stuff happen? That's ridiculous. Do you really love something? Do you love your grandkids? Do you love your kids? Could you imagine standing by one of your children and casually watching them suffer? Absolutely not. I think it was all God could do to hold back from intervening when Satan was doing this. But he was saying, this is going to be a testimony not only for the generation of Job and for his peers, but it's going to be an everlasting uh, testimony of how man can be faithful when he loses everything. So when other people lose things, they can always go back and remember, I can do this because a man named Job in the land of Uz could do it. Don't you think that God doesn't have feelings towards you? And when you're crying your eyes out and when you're sick at night that he, he doesn't care. But sometimes he allows things to happen in your life to prune away the flesh. Yea, those skin worms destroy this body, Job says, yet in my flesh will I see God. The greatest lessons you learn are not the ones on Sunday morning. It's the ones you put in place that you learned on Sunday morning in action on Monday. It's when you live the principles of God that you become the man of God. Don't you glory in the fact of how many sermons you listen to. Some people think they're holy because they've heard every sermon online. But what's important is what you do with the knowledge and the principles that God has given to you. That's what makes you a Christian. And I'm just going to close. I, I think I've said what I needed to say. I could read all the things that happened to Job, but we've, we've taught on that recently. You've heard it. But there's one verse that I need to read in closing. Verse 22 of Job 1. In this, Job did not sin. Or, 
charge God with wrongdoing. Stop blaming God. That's what Satan wants you to do. And what God took notice of, he did not charge God falsely with doing evil. If there might have been a couple more chapters, maybe things would have changed. But God, when he saw he had taken Job to his limit and Job was starting to waver, God came running. And Job bore in his body the marks of the Lord. So all, and I, I mean what I'm going to say. So the next time you look in the mirror of your spiritual life, and you see all the times you were wronged and all the times you were hurt and all the sicknesses you've bore and all the tears you have cried, you see that in the mirror of your life, just remember, those are the marks of victory because you're still living for God with the marks of Jesus in your life. What were the marks of Jesus? His strength got you through your weaknesses. So those marks aren't something to say are bad. Oh, all the bad things. Paul said, these are the marks of the Lord. <sighs> Let's stand together tonight. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and we'll continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.